Good morning, everyone. When I was four, five, six years old, I loved carnivals, you know, the kind with the rides that they would set up on the parking lot at Gibson's, or uh, is that too far south for that, TG&Y, and uh, the fairground out at the edge of town, and they would have, you know, the scrambler and the tilt the world and the zipper. I loved all that stuff. And one morning when I was six, my dad got us up and he took me to one of these carnivals that was on an abandoned fairground out the edge of town. We got there so early on Saturday that it was not opened yet. So we went across the street to a hot dog stand that was open. And we ordered a hot dog, I think, certainly some nachos. We sat there and waited for the carnival to open. And while we were sitting there in the front seat, my dad said, Well, son, I have some bad news for you. Your mom and I are getting a divorce. I couldn't even look up. Just stared into the plate of nachos and cried. And I said I didn't want to go to the carnival that day. So we went home and he dropped me off and that was the end of our family. This is the Your Tough Questions series. What made it that was for the last year we've been passing out cards and uh, you've been filling them out with questions you wanted to hear addressed on a Sunday morning. And uh, here they are. Now, I said a few weeks ago that the most asked question was, how does God allow suffering in the world? But I did a recount, and I was, I was wrong about that. Actually, the most asked question has been all of your questions about divorce and remarriage and Christian marriage. So uh, that's where we are this morning with those questions. Let me just share a few with you. What does Lakeland and the Bible feel about divorce? Here's some more. What is the church's stance on divorce? When is it okay? How does Lakeland feel about divorce? How does the Bible feel about divorce? How does Lakeland and the Bible feel about divorce? Okay, so I think we're kind of getting the constellation of what you're trying to, to ask here. And uh, the answer comes straight from the words of Jesus, who, when he said it, was quoting the prophet from the Old Testament, Malachi, when he said, God hates divorce. Which leads to the next question one of you asked, is there any situation in which it is acceptable? And to answer that, we're going to have to do some Bible study. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. It'll be on the screen. It's on phones now, so we can do this together. Here we are. Some Pharisees came, uh, Mark chapter 10. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him, Jesus, with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them with a question. What did Moses say in the law about divorce? Well, he permitted it, they replied. He said a man can give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away. But Jesus responded, He wrote this commandment only as a concession to your hard hearts. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. <clears throat> it would be hard for us to believe this now, but in their culture, divorce was perfectly all right so long as you followed proper procedure. You had to give a written notice. So you couldn't just take up with someone else and then tell your wife, oh yeah, I've been with her for months. Sorry, I left you. I forgot to let you in on it. As long as you filled out the right paperwork, gave your wife a notice that said, I am leaving you, then you could. 
Now, there was a lot of debates about it, even in the first century, about how and why. And there was two famous rabbis at this time who had two wildly different opinions. The first was Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel said, a man can divorce his wife for any reason. His exact quote was, if she spoils your soup or burns your bread, you can send her away. There was another rabbi, famous at that time, the Rabbi Shammai, and he said, no, no, no. You can only divorce your wife if she has committed adultery. Now notice, no one's asking, when can the wife leave the husband? Because at that time, that was totally illegal. That's not happening. It, very quickly after this passage, it changes. But, so the Pharisees know this is a hot topic, that the crowd will be divided. So they figure, if we get Jesus to say anything, he's going to be in trouble with half the people. So they ask him, what are the circumstances under which you can get divorced? Jesus says, well, I know in the Old Testament, Moses let you do it, but I'll let you in a secret. He only did it because your people are such a mess. That's the only way he could get you to follow him out of Egypt. But I'm going to take you back to the first pages of creation, Genesis chapter 1, and say God brought people together. Therefore, and we've said it in almost every wedding since, let no one separate what God has brought together. No exceptions in the Gospels of Mark or Luke. Then comes the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew tells this exact same story. In fact, even copies a lot of the wording over from the Gospel of Mark. But then, the Gospel of Matthew, when it comes to the end, uh, says something a little bit different. The end of the passage, Jesus says, sorry, let me find it. I'm back in the wrong part. At the end of the exact same story, when Matthew records it, Jesus says this, and I tell you this, Whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless the wife has been unfaithful. Now Matthew sticks to his guns on this. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, he says almost exactly the same thing. I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she's been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. So here in Matthew, now all of a sudden we see an exception. Unless there's been unfaithfulness, and then it's different. Now, how can this happen? Two Gospels have no exceptions. A third, same story with exceptions. To really understand this, we need to read the verses that happen right before the ones we just read. So this is what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 5, just right before that. And you've heard this before. Here's Jesus talking. You've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, I'll, we've heard that. That's strongly worded. But there's no one other than maybe a few crazy groups out in the desert somewhere that believe that what Jesus is saying is, if, yeah, you know, if you're walking around in Home Depot and you see some guy or girl and they've got it going on and you think in your head, wow, they, they got it going on. And in your mind flashes this kind of inappropriate scenario that you got to rush over the tool aisle, get a pair of needle-nose pliers and pull your eye out of your head. No one thinks that. We all realize Jesus is using hyperbole. This is strongly worded language to make a strong point. This is absolutely no different than when you say, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times. Now, you know you've not said it 
a million times, but you're making the point. I've said this an awful lot. It's exactly the same as when you say, I'd rather be dead than have to eat at that restaurant again. Now, it doesn't mean if somebody took you there, you'd be like, oh, goodbye, cruel world. You know, it just means I really, really, really don't want to eat there. Now, Jesus is taking these words to a culture that is going like this. As long as you don't commit adultery, you can do anything else you want. As long as you haven't actually committed adultery, you can divorce your wives when they burn your soup and replace them. You can stand on the street corner and stare at them and think all kinds of dirty thoughts as long as you don't do anything with it. wonder how long that really lasted. But anyways, you can do all this crazy stuff as long as you don't actually commit adultery. And Jesus comes with his story and says, come on. If you're standing there staring at women thinking nasty thoughts all day long on the street corner and every time your wife ticks you off, divorcing her and replacing her, you've committed adultery already. Better to cut off some body part than have your whole body thrown into hell. Jesus says, these are not laws for you to say, well, as long as I didn't do this, I was good. God taught you about sin to protect your heart and protect your soul. That's what Jesus is saying with this story. He's not laying down the law. He's trying to shake up a culture where divorce and oogling women was totally okay. Jesus is saying the people who follow God will renounce these practices even though the culture approves of them. And the culture approved of them. These are not legal passages that only allow a single case under which divorce is acceptable. And I can say that with authority because if you turn just a little later in the Bible, you will find another exception. So this time, uh, we have the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is writing to one of his churches in Corinth. Now listen to this passage. Paul says, But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. Okay, so already you see they had a big law change in Rome and wives could now divorce their husbands. And Paul says, but don't do it. But if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Now I'll speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. So Jesus is now saying, now I'm going to talk to you about something Jesus didn't talk about. So I'm going to have to say something about it as a pastor. But Jesus didn't say this. It's just me, Paul. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. He says, If a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. So Paul has a new situation that Jesus really didn't have. And that is... Either someone who believes in Christ falls in love with someone who doesn't and they get married, or they both didn't believe in Christ when they got married and then one of them's converted and the other isn't. And the people are writing Paul saying, do we have to get divorced? He doesn't have the same faith I do anymore. Or she doesn't believe this. And Paul says, Jesus didn't answer that one for us, so I'll say as your pastor, don't. Stay with them. If they're willing to stay with you, stay with them. Back to the verse. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy. But now, they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. 
So Paul has to improvise again. He says, but if they have decided, I don't want to be married to a Christian. You've gotten too weird. Paul says, let them go, and you're still in good standing with the church. Paul is faced with a new problem as a pastor, and he has to improvise. Now, this little Bible study we have done tells us three really important things about marriage and divorce and God. So the first thing it shows us is that Jesus has been very successful in changing the world's attitude about divorce. Because hardly anyone anymore in any culture takes it lightly. Even people who have had several divorces still consider it a very serious matter to be avoided if possible. And it wasn't always that way before Jesus. The second thing this Bible study shows us is that as the Bible is being written, these letters, these gospels, they hold up this main idea of Jesus that divorce is a terribly painful thing that God does not want to see because of all the pain it causes, but that the church must make allowances in certain cases. Matthew makes an allowance for adultery. Paul makes an allowance for the unbeliever who doesn't want to be with you anymore. But the third thing this Bible study shows us is I want you to notice that Paul doesn't mention the adultery clause. And Matthew doesn't mention the unbeliever who doesn't want to be with you anymore clause. Now these books were probably written at least five years apart and maybe 40 years apart. So if they were meaning to give a list of the only two reasons you could be divorced, they made people wait a long time to get the list, and they would have had to fish through two different writers to get it. Of course, we don't believe that. We believe that these passages are both trying to elevate the holiness of marriage in a culture where it was not held in high esteem, and they succeeded in changing the world on that one. Everyone pretty much respects that marriage is something sacred and, and important. But this passages both say, as pastors, sometimes you have to look at specific circumstances and address them. Matthew addresses his, and Paul addresses his. And as a pastor, I have had to do this. And pastors Dan and, and Pastor Marta has had to do this. And they both have conveniently fled town, leaving me to <laughs> twist in the wind on this one. I'll forgive them. But I, I want to say to you, there is no Bible thick enough to show all the evil things that married couples can think up to do to one another. But the Bible is useful in that it gives us this pattern. The first part of the pattern is that the church should recognize the painful thing that divorce is and that, and that Christians ought to seek any other way. The second part of the pattern is that pastors need to be ready to make some exceptions. Make some exceptions for adultery. Make some exceptions for unbelievers who don't want to be married to a Christian anymore. And there's going to be others. Now, I have advised many of you in the, in the congregation, in the room, to seek a divorce. I did not think when I was going through seminary, I thought, I'm going to come out and be someone who helps people save their marriage. I'm shocked at the number of times I have been the spiritual advisor saying the opposite. But what else could I do? When your husband was beating you, and he wasn't interested in coming to church, much less in seeking help for his violent tendencies, what else could I do? 
when your children were the ones being abused, when they were being exposed to a parade of criminals and strange characters coming through the house, what was I supposed to do? When some of your spouses were smart enough not to harm you physically, but they just terrorized you constantly with threats and insults, daring you to defy the Bible and divorce them when they hadn't committed either of the two listed exceptions. Some of them, after hearing my advice, came to my office themselves and intimidated me, hissing through their teeth at me, Pastor, you're not teaching the Christian way. Of course, meaning that if I was a real Christian pastor, I would have told you to go home and letting them threaten your life every night, I'm sure they're not actually going to go through it. Some of you were married to addicts who were keeping their habit up with the mortgage money and the grocery money and payday loans you didn't even know about and dragging you and the kids down a swirling black hole. Some of your spouses were not emotionally present. They came home, they turned on the TV, they stared at that screen and said nothing for years. The baby was crying, you were sick and injured, the car was broken down, the front window was out in the living room. Nothing could rouse them from their catatonic depression. Some of your spouses were mentally ill. They couldn't not abuse you. Some of your spouses were only verbally abusive. They came home at night to taunt and bully you like a cruel and unruly child on the playground. Some of your spouses asked you for an open marriage to allow other people and strangers into your house and into your bed. What else could I say? I'm telling you, the Bible could never be big enough to cover all the terrible things that married couples can think of to do to one another. So the Bible has done this for it. It has handled a few cases, and it has made a few exceptions, and in so doing, it has given us a pattern we can follow. That in community under the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we are equipped to deal with an infinite number of marriage problems. It is easy to declare a marriage over too early. I admit that. It is easy to rush too easily toward divorce. It is also equally easy for someone in my position to shackle two people together long after it is no longer safe. Now, I know that many of you have been taught by your churches that you loved and you trusted growing up that there are only two reasons for a Christian divorce because there are only two specifically listed on these pages. But I want to remind you, thankfully, that even those churches that taught you that usually still do the right thing when they're confronted with a real situation. I know a very conservative Pentecostal woman who was married to a pastor, and he was beating her. And when the church heard the story, they gathered around them and they granted her divorce in the eyes of the church. Now she went on to marry another pastor from another... She had a pastor thing going on. Uh, she went on to marry another pastor from an equally conservative holiness denomination that normally frowns on remarriage. But after hearing their story, they granted their remarriage and he continued to pastor. Those were good moves. Those are good moves, guided by the scriptures and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. The value of marriage was upheld, but the real lives of people were accommodated for. 
One thing you could say for holiness and Pentecostal churches, they are in tune with the need to hear the will of the Holy Spirit, to discern it and obey it. And when they do those things, it turns out really well. So here's another question you sent in. How does God view divorce? How can we be Christian and divorce? Does it mean our faith is somehow flawed? Go back to what we have already said, that divorce is a terribly painful thing that harms everyone who's involved. And Christians should seek any other way than that. However, sometimes the marriage itself is toxic And it only takes one person who is unwilling or unable to work on it to make it unworkable. Because as we said last week, you can't control another person, not even your own spouse. Does it mean your faith is flawed if you've been divorced? No, not always. There are certainly people who rush to divorce too quickly, but I'll say I have not found that caricature of casual divorce seekers to be true in our congregation. I'm really surprised. I've been around only seven and a half years, which in pastor land, that's a pup. Um, nobody you know, in a group of pastors really thinks I have much to say uh, yet. Come back when you've had 20 years up there, son. Uh, but even in the seven and a half years, I have not yet seen a divorce happened in our congregation where the elders talked about it afterward and said, well, that was really unnecessary. They could have sought counseling. They could have gotten help. No, there, so far, so far, there's always been some story of abuse and neglect and unfaithfulness or some sort of horribly damaging situation. Which brings me to the next question. If someone wrote, if your husband is having an affair, do you morally wait and separate and not divorce? I know it states it's okay to divorce in case of adultery. They've done the Bible study. But is the first option just to wait? A Christian friend said I should not divorce. I actually cannot answer that question. Uh, To answer that question, you would need a group of spiritually wise friends who have known you and known your spouse. And they're not for you or for your spouse, but they're for your marriage. And that spiritual group of wise friends might indeed say to you, you guys just need some time apart. You need some time to heal and to seek help. We know you both. This was a situation that got way out of hand, but we do believe you two can come back together. However, that exact same group of spiritually wise friends might say to you, oh no, this is a pattern that has repeated and it's probably just going to continue to repeat. They're not going to change. They're going to do a lot of talk about changing, but we've already seen that they're not going to do the work. How can we walk with you through the divorce? Only a spiritually group, a, a spiritually wise group of friends who know you, know your spouse, and are for your marriage can advise you that way. That's why we keep talking about small groups here. We just said today is the last day to sign up for a small group. This is how you form uh, these relationships. And it takes years to form them. So you start now, you sign up for a small group now while you're not in crisis. And years down the road, you don't know what will happen. And there they'll be. You don't know that they won't need you. So we come together. That's why our fearless financial challenge had three words under it. Give, gather, go. You guys blew the doors off give. And you're still doing it, by the way. Um, 
But gather was the next word, another thing we're afraid to do, to make the time and the vulnerability to come together, but we're saying it, you've got to gather for these moments. Take that small group sign up seriously, and today's the last day. You visit the kiosk to shore that up. But if you're in crisis now and you haven't, had not developed that kind of relationship, you will need the help of a professional Christian counselor now to sort that through. If the person asking this question is just asking me, yeah, but is the Christian answer automatically separate, don't go straight to the divorce, um, I will say there's nothing in the Bible and nothing in church tradition that says a separation must precede a divorce. There are many options open to you which are inside the grace of God. I do want to say that I'm sorry to whoever this is happening to and to all the people that these types of things happen to. I am sorry that it, that it is that way. And now, you have sent in so many questions, we are out of time. So I talked to Pastor Dan, who's very graciously given up one of his preaching spots so that we could expand this into two Sundays. So we're going to stop for today, and I hope that you'll be able to come back next week as we deal with these questions. One of you wrote, how do we make others understand just how painful it is for the spouse who was a hurt, the spouse who was left or abandoned. One of you asked, how can we help our children deal with the pain of divorce? Someone else wrote, remarriage. What's the Christian in the church's view on getting married again? One wrote, if you get divorced, can it be considered a punishment? And so staying single is now your penance? I hope this doesn't sound odd. I just feel like that's what's happening to me. And what's Lakeland's stance on living together before marriage? And next week, I also want to say a few words to those of you who are in a marriage where you don't have anything this dramatic and obvious happening, but you are dying a death by a thousand cuts. Just little things in your home explode into huge arguments, and they happen with such frequency and intensity, and you don't know what you're going to expect to come home at night. And if you told anybody about the last argument you'd have, they'd just say something like, well, that's no big deal. My husband and I do that. But that is because it's the, the frequency and the severity and the uncertainness and you're just dying and you just don't know if you can do it. I want to speak next week to folks who are in that type of, of marriage as well. So I hope that you'll be able to return for the second half of this. And, and if not, do know that these sermons a few days after they're given do go onto our website and perhaps you can find it, what you need there. So let us pray together this morning and then I want to share with you a few things happening in the life of our church for marriages, for families, and for children, um, so we can end that way with some direction of, of where to go next. But let us pray together first. Father, I lift up to you everyone who asked these questions or could have asked these questions. Pray you bring us clarity. Pray you bring us wisdom. Father, we want to do what your will is. We know you lead us on a, a way up to life to abundant life. Father, we pray that we would have the wisdom given by your spirit to hear these words and obey them. We know you'll call us to something hard. We have suspected that. Help us know that you're walking with us through the hard and that it is the right hard. Help us as a church to be there for one another. We're all gonna go through things like this. Pray for those whose questions are put off for a week, Lord, just for this week. 
hold them and give them peace. Just another week, Lord, let us hang on, walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, let's stand together. I'd like to say a few good words over you before we leave. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.